world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us from who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Well, if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians, um, because that's where we'll be this morning. But I also want to just say, uh, just a bit, today is our seven-year anniversary as a church. And I know, it's, it's really good, and we're excited about that. Um, I do want to just show a couple of pictures that we have geared up. Yeah, just to give you an idea, this was seven years ago when we started, well, this was a little bit before that. This was in our living room at the time, not in the house we're currently in. Uh, So we gathered in our living room for about six months, and so you see all the people who are there, a ton of children. Um, So we we essentially planted a children's church at the very beginning, Um, but all of those kids are are grown up. Some of them are here still this morning, Um, and then you see just in scale of where my son was at size-wise, that was actually, that was seven years ago ago, uh, exactly, it'll be seven years tomorrow, but seven years ago exactly right there. But we also have another pic that'll give you an idea where we're at now. Okay, never mind. This is going to be a funny moment, and uh, Braley apparently just crushed my dreams. I'm just fine. <laughs> um, there was an, I took a picture of anyways Malachi next to the picture. It was gonna you were, you guys were gonna be hysterical. It's in Slack. Well, yeah, we'll check there. So, and just laugh and laugh. So, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have gathered us here once again over these past seven years. You have been so faithful to us, every single one of us. Uh, those who have been with us from the very beginning, but also those who uh, may be visiting us today for the very first time. God, it is all in your good providence that we are all here. Um, and so we're grateful um, in every step that you have been with us. And so, God, I pray that you would be with us now. 
as we study this text of scripture today, that you would uh, open it, open our eyes to the reality of the gospel once again, because we need to hear it. And so I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So I came across an article in First Things magazine this week written by a man named Aaron Wren. And the title of the article was The Three, the Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. And in this article, he highlights the three distinct stages of what he calls American secular, secularization, which, which is just to highlight the fact that there is division in American evangelicalism, even as we sit here today, there is division. And so, and this is seen in these three stages that have happened across uh, space and time. So, um, and this is how he splits these stages up. The first stage is known as the positive world. And so this is everything that has happened between, uh, from, from before 1994 all the way up until 1994. And I know a lot of you were not born in that era. Um, but this was a time when society at large held a positive view of Christianity. So, so to publicly be a Christian was actually a status enhancer. And, 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 the, and the Christian moral norms were the basic moral norms of society as a whole. Now, for you younger, I know that's surprising for you, but uh, that, that, is, that was actually true. Now, the second stage, known as the neutral world, uh, took place between 1994 and 2014. So here, society now takes a neutral stance towards Christianity, and being publicly known as a, as a Christian has neither a positive nor a negative impact on one's social status. So it's really uh, neither here nor there. You could say it in that way. And within this stage, Christianity has become not just the, the, the one standard option that you hold up above, above all others, but now is a valid option within a pluralistic society. It's one among many that you could choose from. So that's the neutral world. The third stage is known as the negative world. And this takes place between 2014 up until right now. And you guessed it, society has now come to have a negative view of Christianity. Now being known as a Christian in certain circles is a social negative. Uh, subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order now brings negative consequences. Think cancel culture. Now within the first two stages that I, that I mentioned, uh, evangelicals in the church had strategies to reach unbelievers within these particular stages. So the, in the positive world, uh, is, this is where we saw the rise of the religious right, if you're familiar with that. It's also where we saw the rise of seeker-sensitive churches. The neutral world is where we saw the rise of cultural engagement. And so instead of throwing out culture in, in this particular uh, um, strategy, men and women sought to engage the culture with the gospel. So you saw a lot of that happening. But within the negative world that we currently find ourselves in, the author concludes his article by saying that currently, evangelicals have no real strategic approach to apply in this negative world. 
like the other two stages had. A lot of this is because most are in denial that we're in a negative world and are uh, sticking to the same strategies that were used in the positive and neutral worlds of the past. So this is why you have um, presidents and presidential candidates who will uh, hold up the Bible or, or try to, to link arms with, with different pastors uh, because they know that there's still a large base of people that believe politics are the tool in which to make the United States a Christian nation. And this is why someone like Tim Keller, who is a great intellectual, not not only a pastor, but a great intellectual, he not only wrote for the New York Times uh, and the New Yorker and the Atlantic, but even after he passed away several months ago, all three of those publications uh, had dedications to this man. And most of them were written by people who were not Christians, and they were praising him. But still, even with that kind of of resume behind you, still Tim Keller was uh, protested at Princeton Seminary, a place where where they train pastors and ministers and people who are going into the gospel, uh, in 2017 because of his views uh, upon uh, ordaining only men in his church and also affirming that men are the head of their homes. And so he got canceled there and protested. So, if we are not to resort back to the past, since those strategies are no longer really working for the broader culture, what are we to do as the church? What are we to do? What is our strategy? Well, my argument for this is that we've always had the strategy. So much so that we didn't need a religious right. We didn't really need cultural apologetics. All we have ever needed is to live as the unified body of Christ in a fractured world. As we saw last week, Paul began his letter by confronting the power structures of Uh, of Corinth that were dividing the church there. So members of the church are starting to rally around uh, behind their favorite Bible teacher and their favorite favorite Christian leaders, uh, exclaiming things like, well, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow Christ, the super spiritual, which was actually them taking on the party-minded spirit of the culture around them. That's what the culture around them did. I follow this political leader. I follow this person of power. I do this particular thing. And this this is what the Corinthian church was adopting at this time. They were aligning themselves against each other behind these different leaders. And this was this is what was causing the church in Corinth to split apart. This is what was causing the church in Corinth um, to, it was beginning to kind of soak into their reality to cause them to disagree about even certain theological issues and practical Bible issues. So instead of being united around Jesus, they were actually ripping his body apart. So in verses 18 through 31, Paul speaks into power and then he contrasted not with weakness. He doesn't just contract, contrast it with the opposite. He actually contrasts it with folly, with foolishness. 
So I mentioned last week that, that the underlying uh, problem in the Corinthian church is that they have lost sight of Christ crucified. That is their underlying problem. They are falling away from the logic of the cross and falling into or back into the logic of the world. And by doing so, they, have now, they now have confusion about God And if you have confusion about God, that's going to leave you to have a muddled understanding of yourself. And that is where the Corinthian church currently was. Meaning it has has caused them to think that they are merely individuals, like their fellow urbanites in Corinth. That That they are on their own. They have absolutely no grounding. They're doing what they feel is best for themselves and not the body at large. So Paul's strategy is not to set up a conservative political arm of the government in Corinth, nor is it to have a guest speaker to come in to address Corinthian culture with the gospel. No, Paul's strategy remains as the same as as it always has been, and that is to bring unity to the body of Christ, unity to the church, centering them around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he takes these next 14 verses to bring them back in line with the cross. And he does this in two ways. One, by reminding them of the message that he, that he first brought to them. So he's reminding them of that again because they need it. And two, he's reminding them what God had done amongst them through that message that he had brought to them. So he's reminding them of the message, and then he's reminding them of God's work amongst them. That's what he's doing. So first, reminding them of the message. Paul begins his reminder in verse 18 by saying, the gospel will always be dismissed as foolishness by those who don't know and love Jesus. Let me just say that again. The gospel will always be dismissed as foolishness by those who don't know and love Jesus. Jesus. And that's true in our day, but that's also, that's also, that was also true in the day that we called the positive world or the neutral world. No matter how friendly people were to Christianity, if they don't know and love Jesus, the gospel, the cross, is always foolishness. So I think the first question to ask because of that is why is the cross foolishness? As one commentator said, to more properly understand the term foolishness is to understand it as something like madness or insanity. He goes on to say, the word of the cross, the very substance of the Christian gospel, is absolute madness to those who are perishing. It is irrationality. It is insanity. It makes no sense whatsoever. It is not just that this message is a little off balance. It is not simply that it's in need of a bit of polishing. It is sheer madness. Why? Why is it sheer madness? Well, three reasons. First, because it goes against everything that falls within your definition of power or the definition of power in our society. So just think about it. When is death ever considered a powerful action? When is death ever used as in, in kind of motivational jargon 
or motivational speeches? Not a whole lot. I would say the only time, I was just kind of thinking about this, the only time that, that, that death holds any sort of power is when someone wants to motivate uh, you to live a better life. So you're going to die. You don't have much time left on this earth. You're going to die eventually. Uh, live, uh, you know, don't waste a moment. You're not going to live forever. You know, that's power there. But I would say more, more often than not, when you think of power, you're probably more likely to think of the, the force of an engine in a strong uh, vehicle or, or the strength of a tornado or an earthquake or a wildfire, or the might of an army, or even the sway a world leader carries. Death, according to human wisdom, is not being brought up in conversation in a conversation on power. Death is weakness. But in Christianity, death is central. Because for the Christian, the message of the cross is the very essence of our identity. For us who are being saved, death is the power of God. Because death is what overturns human wisdom. Death is what disrupts the conversation uh, because it's a redemptive reversal. If you're going to save someone, dying doesn't make a lot of sense. If he said, the way I am, I'm going to save this particular person is I have to die, does not make sense. And so because of that, it is a redemptive reversal. The second reason the cross is considered madness is because of what it says. To say that a man had to die on the cross for your sins and for my sins says that you are way worse than you actually think you are or even believe you are. To proclaim that a sacrifice, a sacrifice had to be made for your sin just to begin with, and that sacrifice had to be the God-man, Jesus, does sound insane to the modern hearer's ears. Death on a cross in Roman society, which is where Corinth was, uh, they were in a Roman society, uh, was considered brutal, disgusting, and abhorrent. Those were the words that were used to describe death on a cross in Roman society. It, it was reserved for uh, convicted slaves and convicted terrorists. So this form of, of death, this form of execution, was reserved only for the very worst of the worst of society. Crucifixion was so offensive that it was never mentioned in polite society. You didn't bring up, hey, what did you think about the, the crucifixion today? That was, that was a little wild, right? You never brought it up. The person who was crucified was, was dead and forgotten. We don't bring it up. Which means, so if you think about the implications of that for the church in the first century, the church in Corinth, where, whose life was centered upon uh, an execution, whose life was centered upon this man who, who went to the cross, who went to the most brutal form of death imaginable, what does that mean for the church? 
I mean, the church proclaimed the crucifixion of Jesus as power. So I'm sure that received a lot of raised eyebrows when it was brought up. So you can begin to see why the crucifixion of Jesus would be seen as foolishness to those in Corinth. A third reason for the foolishness of the the cross is that the cross communicates welcome. So here you have an instrument of death, an instrument of execution, an instrument and and a practice that was never talked about in polite society. And here is this instrument that is an object of welcome. For sinners. Because in the cross of Christ, God has affirmed nothings and nobodies. Because the cross welcomes sinners, the cross opens the way to God. So now everyone has access to God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Now, the danger for the church within this cultural mindset and within our cultural mindset, especially in a a society that has a negative view of Christianity, the danger here for the church is to try to make the cross less offensive. An attempt to make it more acceptable and marketable to the masses. So in a lot of ways, this was, this was how the seeker-sensitive church movement began, was to, to kind of make Christianity more palatable to non-Christian neighbors. And so that's sort of how it began. But we also see this sort of mindset, it's still around. This sort of strategy to play down the gospel and to play down the cross is still happening today. And the only way that this can happen the only way that you can try to make Christianity more palatable to, uh, to an outside world is to replace the offensive, so to replace the cross, with something more digestible. Now, Paul calls this the wisdom of the world. That's what makes it more digestible. This is why Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the message that he had brought them because they continue to default to the culture around them and now have developed cultural blind spots as they relate to the gospel. So they've forgotten Christ crucified or they're forgetting Christ crucified because they have these cultural blind spots up that are not allowing them to see the cross as clearly as when it was first given to them by Paul. So just to pause there and just to, just to think about what kind of cultural blind spots do you have currently? So it's great that we gather on Sundays, and, and I, it's, one, it's my favorite day of the week by far, um, and not just because I get to get up here and, and preach, but I get to see everyone gathered together uh, in, in, in one particular spot. But I know for you guys, come Monday morning, you are being thrust back into the culture at large. You're being told particular messages from coworkers or from the media or from whatever it might be, and you have to react to those things. And over time, if you're not aware of those things or, or you're not trying to combat those things with the word of God, you too will develop cultural blind spots. 
So what sort of cultural messages have you allowed to begin to block out the message of the gospel? So maybe it is ideas about human sexuality. Huge topic right now. Maybe it is, uh, maybe it is the church. Maybe you have questions about that. There's a, there's a massive number of, of, of so-called Christians who are, are, are doing what's called de-churching. They're leaving the church in masses. So maybe that's where you are. Maybe you, maybe you want to know just kind of basics, like how do I settle a conflict with a particular person? Or, or what is the true meaning of marriage? What does it mean? What is biblical marriage? Because the world is telling me something different. Or maybe you're going to go all the way to the top and say, well, what about the resurrection? We say we believe that as a church, and so uh, I, I, that's kind of, that is kind of a crazy thing to believe. What about that? And just so you know, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with every single one of those topics. Because the church in Corinth had blind spots around them. Because every single one of those topics needs to be run through the lens of the gospel. Human wisdom is why Paul, in verse 19, quotes Isaiah 29, 14. Look there with me. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of of the discerning I will thwart. So Paul is referencing God's view of the wisdom of this world and what God's reaction is towards it. So he challenges them to see the wisdom of the world, how God sees the wisdom of this world, because God has a very different understanding of reality than you and I do, just so you know. So what is this wisdom of the world that Paul is referring to? Well, in verse 20, Paul asks, where is the one who is wise? And then he references uh, two groups of people, the scribes and the debaters of this age. And then in verse 22, he references two more groups of people, uh, the Jews who demand signs, so the religious, and the Greeks who seek wisdom, who are seeking to be religious through their own means of seeking wisdom. So, so the reason the Corinthians were tempted to abandon the message was because the message of the cross, because of the reasons I stated earlier, was not immediately philosophically compelling to the city of Corinth and those who lived there. It wasn't as attractive as they thought it would be amongst all of these other ideologies that were floating around. There was nothing eloquent or attractive about it. It didn't make sense within the reigning paradigm that the Corinthian church lived in. So the scribes and debaters sought out intellectual arguments and knowledge to answer the questions of life. So that's how you attain truth. That's how you attain um, uh, reality. Religiously speaking, the Jews were continuing to look to their own spiritual route by looking for signs and wonders. Even though Jesus told them, No sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, which was a reference to his death and resurrection, and yet they keep demanding, God, we need a sign. And then the Greeks just sought wisdom, which means they preferred to use reasoning, their own reasoning and their own judgment to attain knowledge of God. But none of these pursuits 
And I would say in some of these pursuits, they're, they're good things. I'm not saying that you shouldn't pursue, have an in, intellectual pursuit. I actually enjoy doing that, so I, it's not a bad thing. Um, I, I, you know, to, to investigate different religions and, and, dif- and different things like that for your own kind of curiosity and knowledge and, and different things like that, I think are all good things. But none of these pursuits will land you at the cross. They don't end at the cross. They might float around it, but they never end there, which means the wisdom of this world is wisdom that can lead you away from the cross of Jesus Christ. Because wisdom is meant to get you somewhere. True wisdom. It's meant to, it is meant to get you to a higher plane. It is meant to give you uh, answers and to give you uh, a certain amount of power. And yet Paul says in verses 24 through 25, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolish, foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So this is why Paul isn't contrasting the world's wisdom to God's wisdom. Because God's wisdom is not some new wisdom that you can add to all the other wisdoms of the world and kind of make your choice of what kind of wisdom I want and God's is just kind of in there with that. No, God's wisdom is the superior wisdom. It's the superior wisdom. One commentator calls it upside-down wisdom, which presents itself as foolishness to the world. Which should be encouraging for those of you who are addicted to achievement and accomplishments and accolades, using the wisdom of this world to get ahead or even be right before God because God isn't interested in any of those things. He's not saying, man, good job on the promotion. Now you get an extra star in heaven. He's not saying those things. Isaiah says, God will actually destroy all of that. So true wisdom then is giving up on your, own, on, our, on your own wisdom and resting in the foolishness of God, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. So Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the message that he had brought to them and what they had believed. He's essentially writing to the Corinthian church to reconnect them with the narrative and the wisdom of the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing he does. The second thing he does, which is our second point, is he reminds them of what God had done amongst them through this message. So this wasn't just some stale message that Paul had given to these people and they were just kind of living with it. Paul is saying, no, the message of the gospel has been transforming your life. And here is how it's done it. So Paul is very direct in verse 26 So he's connecting their story to what he has just talked about in verses 18 through 25, when he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Or as one, uh, another translation renders it, think about the circumstances of your call. So when he's talking about the call there, that is the call that Christ has placed on you. And if you are a Christian, You have a circumstance in which God had called you to Christ. 
And the Corinthian church had that same call. And so Paul is saying, look back, brothers, look back, sisters, at this call that God has placed upon you. Consider it. Think about it. Uh, and, And then think about where you were. And he goes on to say in this particular translation, not many of you were intellectuals as the world counts cleverness. So if you thought you were an intellectual, the world was looking at you and saying, no, you're not. Not many held influence. They were powerless. And not many were born to high status. So they really had nothing in their life that they could fall back on or depend upon. The only thing they had as Christians was the gospel of Jesus Christ. So according to the value system the world of Corinth used, this meant many, not all, but many of the Christians in Corinth were considered social nothings. Do you ever feel like a social nothing? You ever feel that way? Because that is the picture that the world wants to paint for you. That if you haven't attained this particular status, if you don't have this many followers, if you're not in this particular job, if you're not making this much money, if you don't have your budget under control like Dave Ramsey wants you to, or any of those other kind of worldly accolades that we kind of press upon people, then you are a nobody. And I would say to that, good. I'm glad. Because God loves nobodies. That's who God came for, or Jesus came for. So Paul is asking them, consider your calling, think about it, you were nothing, you didn't have anything, you know, think about that, and they're going, you know what, Paul, you're right. And so Paul is now kind of imaginatively entering into their world and and saying then, why then are you trying to use the criteria now? Now that you have the gospel, now that you have everything that you need in Christ for life and godliness, Why are you trying to use the ways of this world now? Paul is doing what Moses did back in Deuteronomy chapter 7 in the Old Testament by reminding them that it's not anything about them that led God to save them. And so this is what what Moses says to the people from God, to the people. These are his words. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's so encouraging. Praise God that he has saved us as a people. And then Moses is like, wait, I'm not done. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. So it it wasn't because you possessed power It wasn't because you held influence or you had some sort of social status that made you better than the rest of the people around you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That is God's grace that Moses is talking about there. Now, I've always read those verses as if the writer was just simply telling his readers something they already knew, they already believed, and they already lived. They were doing a good job with that. They could pat themselves on the back. But then, after we've, we've gone through Genesis, and so we know that Genesis is 
full of scoundrels that God still uh, chose and loved and used in this world. But then I look at my own heart and think they were probably struggling to believe this, actually. They were probably defaulting back to, to working out their salvation uh, through their good works or their good deeds or what they haven't done or what they will do um, because they believed like the Corinthians. And you and I believe like the Corinthians, that somehow or another I'm the one who earns God's favor, that somehow I need to work for my forgiveness. And do you know when we do this, the prayer of repentance up here every single Sunday, that we are praying that, that, that prayer to God. We're not praying it to each other. We're praying it and asking God to forgive us of our sins. We're acknowledging that we're sin, sinful, asking God to forgive us. And you know when, when Lance or one of the elders comes back up here and gives you that assurance of pardoning grace, that we don't just do that just, as, just to fill time in the service, but it's a reminder of the reality of God's free. You did nothing in that moment to earn that forgiveness that you're assured of. You're sitting here. What have you done? And that is true throughout our lives as Christians. We do nothing to earn God's favor. We do nothing to earn God's forgiveness. So stop trying. So what Paul tells his readers is that there is nothing about them that provoked God to save them. So you're striving now after the wisdom of this world will benefit you in no way in your relationship with God. Now, this is especially encouraging because we too live in a culture that stresses upward mobility, work to get ahead, market yourself for success and acceptance. And this is not only true in the secular world, it's also true in the religious world as well. It's taught in most world religions to be accepted by God, you must do X, Y, and Z to receive that sort of acceptance by God. Or or your good deeds at the end of your life have to outweigh your bad deeds. Some of you may think that now and believe that now, and you're, you're, you're working that out right now. But that's not Christianity. Within Christianity, It's God, out of his love, who moves toward you first. It's God's work towards you that draws you to himself. And this is the message that Paul was telling the Corinthians. Look at verses 27 through 31. And if you don't like the word chose or chosen, better mute your ears right now. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, and because of him, if you don't have that underlined in your Bible, underline that because of him. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not in yourself. 
So what this says is that if, if we are anything, or if we are a somebody, because I know a number of you hold certain high-ranking positions, not just in the military, but in your jobs and things like that, but if you are anything or you are somebody, it all rests upon God's work in you and through you. That's why Paul says in verse 30, because of him you are in Christ Jesus. Because of him you derive a new wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This means that in Christ, the Corinthians receive this gift from God, an acceptance that gives them a new status, a new position that reverses their previous status as social nothings. Now, granted, they probably still will be looked at as social nothings in the Corinthian society at large. But in Christ, they are not. So Paul is stressing the fact that there is absolutely no human effort involved in this work, which is just a reiteration of what is taught throughout the Bible. So there in verse 31, the last verse of our text, Paul is quoting the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah from Jeremiah chapter 9. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses there again. But it says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So here is our strategy, church. Here is our strategy as we live life together in this negative world, because that's where we're at. Here it is. To be found as fools for Christ, who boast not in themselves, but in the power of God. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence. We don't do this enough in our church, but let's take a moment of silence to reflect upon Uh, some of the things that God has showed us in his word this morning, and then we'll take communion together.